As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the crazings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to know good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I'm going to begin by saying thank you firstly. It's good to be here with you and uh, to be able to, to share around God's word. And, and really, I, I want to say thank you, not just for having me today, but for all your support over so many years. Um, when I very first came to this place, my daughters, they were the youngest was, um, well, actually, the, the, the youngest wasn't yet born. Um, and now the youngest has a two-year-old and, uh, and another one on the way. And uh, for all that time, the, you as a church have, have supported. And so I really want to say thank you so much for your um, support and for your goodness to us. As we come uh, to this passage, though, I want to begin with a little parable, okay? Now, when I mention the word parable, we think of, you know, who tells parables? Jesus, please don't compare me or my parable to him um, and to his parables. In fact, what I'm going to share is a bit of a cheap ripoff from someone else who I heard tell a story like this. I just couldn't think of a better story um, to illustrate the point, and that's from Colin Smith. Some of you might know him. Um, but um, but if he heard me telling it, he probably wouldn't even recognise it, okay, because um, it's a bit of a shoddy rip-off. But anyway, so here we go. So you, you come to church one morning, and sitting next to you is someone who is visiting for the first time. They're sitting next to you and you think, I better talk to this person. I want to make them feel welcome. So you get chatting with them. And uh, it turns out that, yeah, they're an unbeliever. They're interested in finding out more about the gospel. They're, they're evidently searching. And so, so, yeah, you're really pleased to see them. You introduce them to a few more people in the church. They kind of stick with you throughout the service and chat again afterwards. So you go your own way. 
And then, the, yeah, you're praying for this person. The next week they come back and you're really pleased to see them. And, um, and you connect a bit more. And it, again, it's clear that they're wanting to know more. There's a hunger there. And so you arrange to meet up with them for a coffee. You say, you know, do you want to find out more? And they're really keen. So you meet up with them in Costa. And to cut a long story short, this person, this young man, begins a journey to faith and comes right through to faith. And, uh, and you know, he gets baptised. Brand new believer now. And uh, you continue to meet with him. And one of the things you notice, and, and you're not the only one to notice this about this guy, is he's got a lot of money. And he's very generous. The, the moment the church says, oh, we need a new PA system or something like that, he's like, I, I'll, I'd like to pay for that. And um, he's got a lot of money. And you also notice that in his lead up to faith, he was really excited. But since coming to faith, there seems to be a holding back. There's something not quite right. And that, so there's these two things. He's got a lot of money and he seems to be holding back. And um, you meet up with him for one of your coffees and a chat and a bit of discipleship. And you ask him, you say, you know, you made such a good start, but, you know, you seem to be holding back. What's the matter? And, um, and he says, well, he says, all my life I've been greedy and I've got a lot of money and I just don't want it anymore. I want, in fact, I would really like to give it to the church, but I didn't know if I could just give the sort of money that I want to give to the church. Um, and so he explained to him, look, you don't have to give away all your money, you know. Um, it's a really good thing to do. He doesn't seem like necessarily the, the wisest person with money, and you, you're a bit concerned. But he, he, he's adamant he wants to give all his money, all his excess money to the church. And, um, and so it just comes into your, to your mind to ask him a question. You, you, you ask him the question, you say, you know, where, where did you get all this money? And then he explains that when he was an unbeliever, he was in insurance and he basically embezzled the money. He's and, and he's wanting to clear his conscience by now just giving it all to the church. He's genuinely repented. And for him, he's got this problem of a guilty conscience. And, and, and the way to solve it is to just give the money to the church. And he thinks problem solved if, it, if he can just do that. And you realize he's a married man. He's got a young family that actually he, th th there's a much bigger problem here. This guy is going to be going to prison. He's going to have to fess up. And, um, and I think, you know, can you imagine that? It's going to rip his family apart. And I think in the passage that we've had read to us, the Apostle Paul does something like that. He, Paul tells us that whatever problems, and we've all got problems, haven't we? We've all got challenges in life, all got problems that we're aware of. But whatever problem we may think we've got, there is a greater problem. And, and that is what Paul is sketching out for us, a great problem. Great as in not a good problem. There is no such thing, I guess, as a good problem. But a massive problem, a huge problem. A bit like this guy, he thought, you know, he could just... Yeah, he had a bit of a problem. He felt guilt. He wanted to alleviate himself of that by giving his money away. Actually, he had a much bigger problem on his hands. And whatever problem, problems we may feel that we may have, Paul is telling us of a much, much bigger problem. He says this, As for you, 
you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time. So he's saying that you were dead. This is a big problem. And he says, all of us lived among them at one time. So that means this, folks, that either you were dead in sin and now you've been made alive, praise God, or you are dead in sin. He says, you know, all of us lived among them at one time. In other words, nobody is exempt, no one. Everyone, Paul is saying, is or was dead in sin. Now, when we think about what it means to be dead in sin, we might imagine that it just means, you know, there's no response, no life. Well, it does mean that. But when Paul wrote this, he was writing to people that were far more familiar with death and what it means to be dead than we. Um, Most of us go through life and rarely see a corpse. Well, if you lived then, you'll have seen corpses. It wasn't an unusual thing. In fact, when a family member died, they'd remain um, in you know a few days before being buried, and um, and they knew then you only had up to about four days. You've got to get them in the grave within four days because they knew they'll have seen. They knew what happens to a corpse. It's really unpleasant. I read up about it. By day four. Okay, the body's changed colour without preservatives kind of thing that we had. Um, The body's changed colour, it's bloated by day four, filled up with gases which begin to break out in very bad odours. Every orifice, orifice of the body weeps. The whole body's begun to break down. The stench um, becomes apparent within four days. Okay, very quickly... The human body breaks down. And they knew you've got to get the body in the ground pretty quickly because it's not nice. And when Paul says you were dead, he wasn't just saying you were unable to respond to God. That's definitely the case. But more than that, we are repugnant. They're, they're, they're vile. Uh, I remember, you know, my own experience of seeing dead bodies. I remember when I was 16 years old, I saw my first dead body. A friend of mine, Darren Fredericks, he was on a youth training scheme. These are training schemes that the government did. They paid you 26 quid a week to do a kind of an apprenticeship type thing. And he was doing one of these in the local um, funeral directors, William Weller's funeral directors. And they had a morgue there. And he would let us in at the weekends to come and see some of the bodies. And I remember looking at dead bodies and being shocked, actually, by them, by just the deadness. But that gives no idea. And, and most, if you've seen a, 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 a dead body, it's something like that that you've seen. Stone cold, the, the expression, no expression anymore. You can see they're dead. It's a horrible sight. But it's, there's more to it than what Paul is saying than, than what we see there and they understood that there's there's a repugnance I also remember as a as a small boy um, 
with my friends seeing a badger, a dead badger on the side of the road. And, you know, I'd seen lots of small, you know, dead animals, but the bigger they are, the more fascinating they become, at least to a young boy, at least to me. And, and what me and my friends did is what any young boys would do. We found a stick and started, you know, sort of poking it. And, um, and it kind of, it stunk. It was bad, right? As you can imagine. But it looked all right. You know, it still had the fur on and everything else. There was flies around it and it definitely wasn't all right. We could tell that from the smell. Um, but we managed to sort of, with our sticks, turn it over. And as we turned it over, honestly, it, all of us like turned away immediately, gasping for breath. And, um, you know, you wanted to throw up. It was riddled with maggots. It was like it was almost alive. And, um, and when Paul says, you were dead in your sins and transgressions, he's saying you, as far as you know, to God, you were something like that badger. You weren't just dead, you were repulsive. Yet there, was, there was absolutely nothing good about us as far as God was concerned. You were dead Every one of us was dead. This was our great problem. It says you were dead in transgressions and sins. Transgressions, that's like we've broken God's laws. That's when we break God's laws. Sins is falling short of his standards. So whenever we're thinking cynically about people, we're falling short of God's standards, we're sinning. It says you were dead in transgressions and sins you know, when you dive into a swimming pool your your body hits the water doesn't it and there's that initial feeling of coldness and then your body you, you feel your body enter right in and then suddenly you're like swimming around you're in the water you were dead in transgressions and sins your whole life was law-breaking and and falling short of God's standards and Paul says that we were dead in transgressions and sins when we followed the ways of this world, the whole, we lived among people. This is what happens in the world. They're all dead. It's like a zombie apocalypse type thing. They're, they're dead and we were dead and maybe you're still dead. Just living their lifestyle. Just going along with the whole crowd. Oblivious to God. Uninterested in God. Worshipping false gods, whatever it may have been. This is what Paul says was our problem. When we followed the ways of this world, but he tells us more, that the whole world is following the spirit of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at now, now at work in the children of disobedience. That's talking about Satan. Says So Paul is telling us, you know, all of us had or we have this massive problem. Whatever other problems you think, you may have in life, this dwarfs them all. This is massive. Followers of Satan. I think, I never followed Satan. Well, according to Paul, as we followed along with the world, we did. We were in a bad way. It says, in fact, that the spirit of the kingdom of the air was at work in us, the spirit of disobedience. You might say, do you know what? 
I wasn't, you know, number one, I came to church to be uplifted. This isn't very uplifting. And number two, I wasn't that bad. Or you might, if you're not yet a believer, you might think, I'm not that bad. You know, I do a lot of good. And it's true, isn't it? We do do a lot of good. And, and, and the Bible understands that. It, it teaches that. We've been made, all of us, in the image of God. That's what the Bible teaches. So there are traits of that image in all of us. This isn't denying that. But what this is saying is that notwithstanding the relatively good things we might do, every single one of us, when we was dead in our sins, we lived every moment of every minute, of every hour, of every day in rebellion against God. Every one of us. That is our great problem. And none of us are exempt. Even you know, Mussolini, if you know anything about Mussolini, well, not if you know anything about him, but you might know, Mussolini was a family man. He'd have said, I'm not all bad. The good things that we may do don't make up for, as it were, the massive, this great problem that we all have of rebellion against God. And why are we rebellious? Because of that spirit of disobedience. The result is, we are, Paul says, children or objects, children of wrath. God's anger, his hostility, his opposition is focused on us. Paul says, every single one of us was, were like that, lived among them at one time. We were all children of wrath. And if... We are no longer children of wrath. It is because of a great salvation. So, so all of us lived among them at one time. Maybe, maybe there are one or two here that are still in that situation, still dead in their transgressions and sins. Maybe you've never thought of yourself like that before. And if you're a Christian, maybe you've always thought you wasn't that bad. But Paul paints a bleak and a true picture for us. But there is a great salvation. I think, um, as Pete was praying earlier, he talked about the depths of our sin and the depth of God's grace going even deeper. That's good news, isn't it? When we think about the problem that we had, this great problem, and then we think about this great salvation, what a wonderful relief. We read, don't we, those words in verse 4. We first we read about the problem, then in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. So here's the first thing about the great salvation. He makes us alive. We were dead, but he makes us alive. Firstly, he makes us alive to God. Um, when someone becomes a believer, and if you're a believer, you'll remember this, 
And if you're not yet a believer, perhaps God is beginning to work in you. And here's what happens. You, you begin to become conscious of God. You know, it's like when you wake up in the morning, you, you, you wake up, you gradually become, well, if you're anything like me, you gradually become conscious. You know, you, you start to, you're just aware that you've just woken up, you're not really thinking about anything, and then you open your eyes, you begin to see, you begin to, you start thinking, oh, what's the time? You know, you realise you've got to get up, you check the time, and, and you become more and more conscious till you're fully conscious. Well, God made us alive. If you're a believer, you were dead. You can probably remember when you first began to become aware of God, aware of eternal things, aware of your sinfulness. If you're not yet a believer, perhaps that's beginning to happen for you now. God makes us alive. If you are a believer, this morning, and you are alive. You are alive to God. And this means things like you now have a love for his word that you didn't before. It means there's, you may feel a failure when it comes to reading God's word, but you want to grow in that. There's a desire for God, a desire for his word. You, you love to worship him. You've had moments when you know you've really met with him and, and, and they're your high points in life. You love to, to be a part of, of his working in you. You love to share the gospel. Maybe it, you're, you're afraid of doing that and it's a scary business, but you love to do it when you get the opportunity. These are all signs that you've been made alive. You love the promises of God. You get conviction of sin. You can't enjoy sin anymore. You've been made alive. This is something that God does. He made us alive and raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. He's made you alive. This is the great salvation. But he's not just made you alive and given you purpose and a family and all those things that we were thinking about earlier as, um, in the children's talk. Not only those things, but it says that he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. And it says it in its, its past tense. It's kind of like, how does that work? You know, I get that. You may get it that, yeah, I've been made alive and, and now I've come to know the Lord and I'm a part of the people of God and I love his word and all that. But in what, how am I seated with Christ in the heavenly realms? Well, Paul is speaking really from God's perspective. God who is outside of time. He's not bound by time in the way that we are. And from God's perspective, it's a done deal. He has raised you up. He's given you life and you have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Isn't that amazing? Now, for, for you, you might think that doesn't seem real. But, you know, God's perspective on reality is, is truer and more reliable than mine and yours. And he says, you have being seated. This salvation comes with such security. We never need to worry or fear that, that we're going to be lost again. Such is the great salvation of God. You have been seated. And so if ever you 
feel that, you know, I'm not sure about the reality of that. This is a question of faith, trusting God. It's true. You have a place there. It's yours. It's got your name on it. Being seated in the heavenly realms. Not only that, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. We're God's handiwork. As part of this salvation, God doesn't just save us and get us into his kingdom, as as it were, and leave us. With that, he remakes us. We were, I use the term zombie apocalypse, you know, repulsive to God. There was nothing, nothing appealing about us as far as God was concerned. But when we become a new believer, God begins to change us. I'm going to read a chapter, actually, um, from the book of Ezekiel, or half a chapter. and Because um, I think it illustrates the point pretty well. Um, so in Ezekiel chapter 37, you'll know this. Yeah, what happens with a, a corpse if you leave it long enough? It just deteriorates, decays until you're left with just bones, dry bones. And, and, and Ezekiel speaks of a vision of dry bones. Let me read it for you. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. All life was gone. Yeah, there was nothing, just dry bones. I said, Sovereign Lord, sorry, he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? Is there any hope? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. The bones were coming to life. A bit like we were talking about just a few moments ago, beginning to become aware of God. There was a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. That's a wonderful picture that does illustrate what I'm talking about this morning. That is, God breathes life into us and then he remakes us. But you notice from from that story there, that, that vision, that God remakes us, as it were, from the inside out, doesn't he? Change comes on the inside and then he begins to add and, if, and, and God has begun a work in us. We're his handiwork. None of us are finished. You know, we're like God's work of art. 
not finished yet. You imagine looking at someone's sculpture, a brilliant sculpture, a sculptist, and they're halfway through the job. It doesn't look like a lot necessarily, but it's on its way. It's not the finished product. And that's us, isn't it? If we've trusted in Jesus, we are his handiwork. He's began a work in us and he's going to continue it to completion. That is why we sometimes look around and we're unimpressive, right? To one another. Unimpressive a lot of the time to the world. But God is working in you. If you think you're a believer and there's been no change since you come to faith and you're just stagnant, then that would suggest that maybe Maybe you're not a believer. If you have no love for God's word, if you have no desire to really worship him, if you have no desire to make the gospel known to others, then I want to encourage you to think, have you really repented? Because if you have been made alive, God is at work in you and you will be changing. God's handiwork. And then the last thing, a great salvation and a great, great God. But because of his great love for us, this is our God. God who is rich in mercy. You know, as I was was sketching out what it means for us to be dead in sin, we can be thinking, what kind of a God sees us like that? This is the God. This is the God that makes us alive. One who is full of love and rich in mercy. He says, it is by grace you have been saved. You know, mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. So as those repulsive, um, apocalyptic zombie type creatures, we deserved His wrath. He doesn't give us that. He withholds that. He doesn't give us what we deserve. That's mercy. But instead, there's grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. He makes us alive and raises us up and seats us with Christ, gives us security. And he starts to remake us. We don't deserve any of that. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, even while we were dead. In transgressions. In verse 7, why did he do it? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. God is, whatever you have come to know of God's grace, there's more. Inconceivably more. One day we'll see more and more and more, yeah, the magnitude of his grace. I do believe that that we will see the measure of his mercy and grace for the first time, really, when it comes to the judgment. We'll see for the first time how sinful we really were as we stand in the light of his holiness. And we will see the measure of his love and mercy and grace that even saved me that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. He's a kind God. This is our great God. This is the one that we worship. 
incomparable riches of mercy and grace. This is what he offers to us. As we close, just a couple of applications. Verse 10, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In light of of what he has done for us and in light of who he is, the kind of God that he is, how should we respond? Well, he's given us work to do. What is that work? Well, he's making us, his handiwork, he's making us more like Jesus. And that means one of our, our, our works, as it were, is to be something like Jesus. And that means to love the Lord your God. And I want to encourage us because we can be fairly conservative sometimes in the expression of our love and of, of, of showing grace to love and worship to God and grace to one another. Um, and the reason for that is because it feels like it's not really us. Do you know what I mean? You know, we think, I can't really worship God. Everyone will look at me and, or whatever. Um, it's not really me. But you, listen, we know he's worthy of all glory and honor and praise. He's worthy of nothing less than the very best that we can bring. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul says in Ephesians to put off the old self and put on the new. You know, it's like God says, this is what you are. Well, take it off. I'm going to give you these new clothes and these new works. And we put them on and we feel like it doesn't really suit me because we we live out of our old identity so much, so much of the time. But God says, no, no, this is you now. I want you to live according to this new you. Um, Very quickly, just to illustrate what I mean, there used to be a TV show it was a kind of one of these things where these two w- women, Trini and Susanna, I think their names were. Some of you might remember this show. They would take some kind of woman, usually a, a sort of middle-aged woman, who had sort of given up on taking good care of herself, and they give her a fantastic makeover. And, and it would, um, the whole show would lead up to the reveal, where her husband sees her, this new woman, hair done, new clothes, different sort of look. Um, and, 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 and sort of the, she stands in front of a mirror. She's not seen what she looks like. They pull the mirror, the mirror back and there she's this new person. And, um, and it gave them a new identity kind of thing. And then a few months later, Trini and Susanna would go back and meet these people again and see how they're doing with their new identity. And many of them went back to how they were. Some of them didn't. Some of them carried on with this new sort of completely new look. And why did some go back? Well, because they would go into work and everyone would look at them and they'd feel self-conscious. They'd feel, this isn't really me. And so they were more comfortable being like how they were and they would give up on it. Whereas others, they said, no, this, is, I'm, uh, this doesn't feel like me and everything else, but this is new me. Get used to it, everyone. And I've got to get used to it. And they would continue with it. And after a while, guess what? Everyone got used to them. And they got used to that new person. And God says, you know, I've made you new. Give yourself. 
Don't go back into the comfort of your own identity. You have been made for the glory of God. Now worship him with everything you've got. Don't shrink back because you feel a bit uncomfortable. And in showing grace and love to one another, maybe you think, oh, it's not really me to, 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 get to tell someone that I'm praying for them or to ask someone how they are or to show some kind of act of generosity and kindness. Paul says, do it. This is the new you. And maybe people will be surprised. Just keep doing it. And it will become you. You grow into it. We have a new identity. Give yourself to God in worship and in praise and give yourself to serve in one another. Be the new person that he has made you and don't shrink back to your old identity. Don't let that dominate. And then the second thing is to proclaim the gospel. Jesus will be made more and more like him to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. Part of that is proclaiming the gospel, the good news that we have all come to hear. Jesus left the glory of heaven, didn't he? And became a man. Lived among us that we might hear and know the good news. And that's what he calls us to do. To take a step of faith and speak out. We live in a world now that doesn't appreciate the gospel. And again, the temptation is to shrink back. I want to encourage us. Let's be bold and proclaim unashamedly the one who is worthy.